This morning's first scripture reading comes to us from the book of Isaiah, chapter 20, verses 1 and verses 8 through 14. Let's listen together for a word from God. Comfort, oh comfort my people, says your God. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of our God will stand forever. Get you up to a high mountain, O Zion. Herald the good tidings. Lift up your voice with strength, Jerusalem. Herald of good tidings. Lift it up. Do not fear. Say to the cities of Judah, Here is your God. See, the Lord God comes with might. His arm rules for him. His reward is with him, and his recompense is before him. He will feed his flocks like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms and carry them in his bosom and gently lead the mother sheep. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heaven with a span and closed the dust of the earth with a measure? and weighed the mountains on scales and the hills in a balance? Who has directed the Spirit of the Lord, or as his counselor has instructed him? Whom did he consult for his enlightenment? And who taught him the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? The Word of God. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of John, chapter 1, verses 24 to 34. Let's listen again for a word from God. Now, they had been sent from the Pharisees. They asked him, Why then are you baptizing if you are neither the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? John answered them, I baptized with water. Among you is one whom you do not know, the one who is coming after me. I am unworthy to untie the thong of his sandal. This took place in Bethany, across the Jordan where John was baptizing. The next day, He saw Jesus coming towards him and declared, Here is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. This is he of whom I said, After me who comes a man who ranks ahead of me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but I came baptizing with water for this reason, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John testified, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain is the one who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I myself have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. The Word of God for the people of God. 
pray together. Open our hearts and our minds to, to your word this morning, your presence among us and around us and within us, O God. And may the meditations of our hearts together upon your word, your presence in our lives today, be acceptable in your sight and life-giving to us as your people. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Everybody's pretty familiar with the first part of the first chapter of the Gospel of John, the fourth Gospel. That first part we call the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, dot, 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 and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. We've, we read that at, at Christmas. We centered our worship service, our candlelight services around it just a couple of weeks ago, but not everybody is as familiar with the second half of the first chapter of the fourth gospel, the gospel of John. And today I want to look at this one sentence in particular. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, said John the Baptist, and the Spirit remained on him. I saw the Spirit descend on Jesus like a dove, and the Spirit remained on him. Okay. That's the story of Jesus' baptism. The baptism is all over the service this morning. We, we're familiar enough with the imagery. Uh, but just quickly, one difference between the way John tells the baptism story and the, way, the ways that Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and everybody has their own way of telling it. Who sees the dove in this one? You went to seminary, stop. <laughs> Who sees the dove? Just John, right? You know, in the, some of the other texts, everybody sees it or just Jesus sees it, but here, just John. Okay. You can impress your friends at parties with that little factoid. But what does the baptism of Jesus Christ, which we're celebrating and recognizing today, have to do... Well, with anything, let alone this particular weekend, this weekend when we honor the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King, and we celebrate the inexorable march, inexorable march toward justice and freedom for all people. On this MLK weekend, it's a fair question to ask, what does Christology, the words we use about Jesus Christ, have to do with racial equality, or even in a broader sense, justice for all, for living for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, which should be, in this country at least, if not the world, everybody's destiny. Well, I think Christology, who Jesus is, what we have to say about him, has everything to do with MLK weekend, MLK Sunday, if you will. And especially in that sentence, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove upon him, and it stayed on him. So let's take a few minutes this morning to break down this passage and to get at this sentence spoken 
by a guy named John in a gospel written by another guy named John. So it's confusing. Stick with me. John the Baptist and John the Gospel writer. They're not the same guy. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. That's the testimony of John. That's courtroom language, right? An affidavit. He signs it. It is notarized. It is in the record. I saw this. To me, that is news. Good news. Not a discouraging word that the Spirit remained on Jesus and remains on him still. Because as a follower of Jesus Christ, I trust in that presence of the Spirit on him, if not on me. In fact, I know, even though I get the Spirit a lot, I just got it with Kumbaya. I always get it when Anne Marie plays Glory to God. But the Spirit kind of drains out of me sometimes, too. Now, you may have heard from this pulpit more than once that the Gospel of John is quite different than what we call the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, right? Synoptic, synonym, means sin means sort of the same, and optic means viewing, the same way of viewing things. That's pretty much Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, we're almost positive that Matthew and Luke had Mark in front of them, the scroll open while they wrote their own scroll. They just sort of added to it, and as Luke says, corrected it. But John is a completely different animal, completely weird and strange. Especially today. This is already in the first, at the end of the first chapter of his gospel, we get a sense of the difference as John gives us another view of what discipleship means. In the synoptics, people follow Jesus after he says, follow me, because, well, they see all the healings, they kind of get his charisma, um, and he makes a promise to them. It's kind of a transactional agreement, you know. Come follow me and I'll, I'll make you fishers of men, fishers of women, fishers of people. But not in John's gospel. In John's gospel, the decision to follow Jesus, to stand for what he stands for, to live the life he leads you into, only comes uh, after a decision about who he is. In other words, you and I decide who we are only after we decide who Jesus is, only after we figure out our Christology. But what words do we use about Christ? What does he mean to us? Think about it. Why would you follow someone? Or maybe a better way of putting it is, who would you rather follow? Someone who promises that you'll get something out of it? That's a pretty good person to follow. Uh, when I was in college, there was a my guy in the dorm room next to me who really got into Amway. Anybody ever go to an Amway meeting? They're a little bit like church. You're worshiping something different, though there are plenty of churches that kind of don't seem a lot different than an Amway meeting, but you get what I'm talking about. There's a, there's a pot of gold at the end of this rainbow if you just hang in there long enough and convince enough people to sort of work for you, I guess. 
Or would you prefer to follow someone not who promises you something, but just because of who that person is? Think about your favorite boss, favorite teacher, coach in your life. In John, disciples follow not because of what they're going to get out of it, but because of the promise that the gospel writer tells us that Jesus lays out before them, but simply, as John the gospel writer says, because of who Jesus is, his identity. And John bears witness to that identity in this courtroom language, this legal lease that we have in this text, the word testimony. John testifies, a witness on the stand, under oath, about who Jesus is, his character this morning. And that character is what's going to give us hope in this world, in a world that seems so often these days so hopeless. Did you pick up in that first section? A delegation from Jerusalem has already shown up earlier in this chapter. And this delegation sent from the Pharisees of Levites and scribes is challenging John the Baptist's authority. So John the Gospel writer is telling us about this confrontation that John the Baptist has. Remember, we're just in chapter 1 of John's Gospel. We're just getting to know who this Jesus person even is. But the story starts after that prologue, in the beginning was the word. The story starts, as it does in the other Gospels, with this John the Baptist guy. And these officials, these religious officials, come from Jerusalem. They say, who are you and why are you baptizing? And John, like a good, good you know, religious person, he, he, changed, he doesn't answer the question. He redirects it and says, uh, doesn't want to talk about himself. He says, I baptize with water, but the one who comes after me, I'm not worthy even to untie that person's shoes. He's already said, I'm not the Messiah, and I'm not Elijah. They've been asking him that. But now he says, specifically, I'm not the one, and the one coming after me, that's the one you're looking for. Notice that the gospel writer here is very careful to make sure we understand that John the Baptist is not as exalted as Jesus. By the time the gospel of John was being written, probably in the early second century, late, late, late first century, People were still, there were still disciples of John the Baptist sort of walking around. John the Baptist, of course, lost his head years before. But John, the gospel writer, wants us all to understand that Jesus Christ, about whom John testified, is what John and all of us should really be about. In fact, John the Baptist says, hey, I am not him. I am not the one. I'm just a witness. Marturia is the Greek word here. I just witness. This is a legal word. That's all I'm here for, to point to him. And then we get this incredible sort of scene. John the Baptist, I guess, is just standing around, as my kids would say, chilling, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus walks by, and John the Baptist, again, sort of in this legal sort of atmosphere that the writer has set up for us, says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is my testimony. Here he is, the Lamb of God. That, there's a Christological term, if there ever was one. One of the words we use about Jesus. 
And that's John's full answer to the delegation of religious folk who come to him. John is basically saying, look, I'm just here to reveal who he is to you and to everybody else. He's the Lamb of God. And remember, Lamb of God is a pretty powerful image for a bunch of Jewish people, even today. Lamb is a symbol for them of freedom and sacrifice, symbol of life when life was almost lost. Think of the Passover, the Passover lamb, the blood of which was smeared on the doors of the people of Israel, Hebrews who would be saved. The sacrificial lamb. Now, that for a Jewish person, easy to sort of comprehend, but for those of us who are very waspy, like me, a little harder, so here's another story. A tourist visited a church in Germany and was surprised to see the carved figure of a lamb near the top of the church's tower, not a cross, a lamb. So the tourist asked why the lamb was up there and was told that when the church was being built and especially that tower was being constructed, a workman fell off a very high scaffold up there all the way to the ground. His co-workers rushed down to him to find out what had happened to him. They expected to see him dead or very badly injured, but to their surprise and joy, this guy was alive and only just scratched up a little bit, slightly injured. A flock of sheep had been passing by right under the tower at that time, and the guy landed right on top of one, splat. Sadly, an animal was harmed in the telling of this story. That lamb, though, broke the man's fall, saved his life. And to commemorate that miraculous escape, someone carved a lamb up there on that tower instead of a cross. The lamb is a symbol of life and salvation and deliverance of freedom-bringing sacrifice. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Lamb, cross, they're the same. And then we get this very Johannine, John the Gospel writer's view of Jesus' baptism. And notice how John the Baptist has very little to do in this baptism. He just moves to the sideline. In the other Gospels, he presides. He dunks Jesus in the water. Not here. He just witnesses, right? He just watches. Behold, I saw the Spirit come down and land on him. You don't even get any water thrown around in this version of the baptism. It's just a spiritual baptism right there. No symbolism needed. The Spirit descended like a dove, John says, and it stayed on him, John says. And here's that encouraging thing that really stuck with me this week. The Spirit stayed on him, remained on him. Remain is a word used repeatedly in John's Gospel. It signals belonging and attachment, permanence, commitment, investment. It's not transitory. It doesn't come and go. It's there. The Spirit of God is on and in Christ Jesus. Seems obvious, I know. But think about it. The Spirit, as I've said earlier, doesn't stay with the rest of us like that very much. We welcome it. It gets us moving, maybe even rhythmically. But after a while, 
if the Spirit's not paying off for us kind of immediately, we'll, we'll let, shove it to the side, we'll ignore it, we'll pretend we don't need it anymore, or we'll let the Spirit of God, which feels so good when we're in it, with it, we'll let it sort of you know, get lost with all the other stuff we've got to do. But with Jesus, the Spirit sticks. It remains on him from the start. And that's good news because we need it to stick. Martin Luther King Jr. said, we as followers of Jesus are called to be a people of conviction, not conformity, of moral nobility, not social respectability. We're called to be a people of conviction. We're called to be a people that sticks. But, he said, no matter how fast or hard or joyfully we start, we, you and I, tend to run out of conviction pretty fast. I've witnessed life, people have life-changing experiences serving, for example, hungry neighbors at our soup kitchen, volunteering to spend time with homeless people, human beings just like us who can teach us as much as we can help them. I've seen people, kids on mission trips, have their lives impacted so deeply that they're never quite the same again. And it's always amazing. It just works every time. The spirit, you can trust it, it works. But at the same time, and that takes speak from personal experience, at first after the smooth sailing, then after all the excitement, then sooner or later, you know, back to my old self. There are roadblocks, there are external problems and hurdles to get over. It's hard to be spiritual all the time when you're busy. And there are internal obstacles too, right? We get tired, we get frustrated with other volunteers, with the drama of not seeing a payoff immediately. Are we making any difference when we're just handing out food or water or backpacks or toiletries? Yeah. So we kind of let it drop, at least for a while. We let it get lost in all the other things that we'd like to get to when we have some time. We find reasons not to do it. Budgetary reasons, scheduling reasons. It's so hard to get volunteers. MLK said, how often the church has been an echo rather than a voice when it comes to justice, when it comes to freedom. When it, becomes, when it comes to Christ's vision for this world, God's vision for this world, how often the church has been just an echo rather than a voice. The good news today, friends, is we don't have to have the Spirit only ourselves. We don't have to be spiritually vibrant all the time. I know you'd like to be. I can see it on your face. But you don't have to do that. Jesus will do it for you. God's sovereign gift to you and the world will do it for you because the Spirit sticks with him and he sticks with you. Remember all the, na the name Lamb of God that John the Baptist uses for Jesus here? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In chapter 1 of John, the Gospel writer's Gospel, but that's just the tip of the iceberg. In chapter 1, John, the gospel writer, has his characters use all kinds of names for Jesus. And just in chapter 1, Son of God, Word, Rabbi, Messiah, Son of Man, Him, 
who takes away the sins of the world. And that tells us there are so many names for this presence, this gift, this love, this grace in our lives, not to keep our eyes and hearts closed, but rather keep them open for new revelations, new possibilities for what this God can do in our lives if we'll just let the Spirit go to work. You can trust it. You can trust it. Because when you do, that's when the Spirit gets loose in the world, through you, through me. Not because we're creating it, but because we're letting Christ's Spirit go to work in us and through us. I read a story about a woman who uh, went to a pet store to buy a parrot. She picked out a parrot that the owner said was guaranteed to learn how to talk. Easy to train. She bought a book on training parrots so she could really learn how to do it. And this book claimed its technique was foolproof and would always teach a parrot to talk within a week. So the lady took the book and the parrot back home. Seven days later, she's back in the pet store complaining. I followed that book and your instructions explicitly, and the parrot's not saying a word. The storekeeper was genuinely puzzled. He asked her, does your parrot have a mirror? Parrots like to be able to look at themselves in a mirror. Get a mirror, and then he'll talk. So she bought a mirror and went home. Two days later, the lady's back. But once again, she's not happy. The bird's still not saying anything. The shopkeeper thought for a second again and said, what about a ladder? Parrots love going up and down ladders. I bet if you buy a ladder, the parrot's going to talk. Sure enough, two days later, she's back again. Parrot's not saying anything. She's not happy. Does the parrot, does your parrot have a swing? Pet owner said. Birds enjoy relaxing on swings. If he's relaxed, he'll talk. So she buys the swing and goes home. Very next day, now really mad and sad, the woman returns and announced that her bird, her parrot, is no more. The parrot has ceased to be. It's dead. The storekeeper, also visibly upset, said, I'm so terribly sorry to hear that. I don't know what to say, except for, you know, before the parrot died, did he ever actually say anything? Well, yes, said the lady. Just before it keeled over, the parrot said, don't they sell any food down there at that store? <laughs> Friends, we can be busy. We can go in lots of different directions, especially as followers of Jesus. But the trick is to go in the one direction that matters, just like he said to Martha, who was so busy with things that didn't matter, that Mary, her sister, had chosen the one thing that was needful. And that one thing, as Mary knew, was to stick close to the one who's always got the spirit we need, the gift of God's very presence in our lives. Shirley Guthrie, a man, but a very, very famous Reformed Presbyterian theologian, uh, in an article wrote these words, which I'll, with which I'll conclude. All cheap and easy talk about a God of sovereign power who is in control of a world in which there is so much poverty and suffering and injustice is obscene talk. All self-confident talk about a powerful church that has a mandate and the ability to change society with this or that conservative or liberal social political agenda or with this or that evangelistic program is increasingly absurd talk in a disintegrating church that can't even solve its own problems 
much less the problems of the world. The only gospel, Guthrie says, that makes sense and can help is the good news of a God who loves enough to suffer with and for a suffering humanity. And the only believable church is one that, like John the Baptist, is willing to bear witness to such a God by its willingness to suffer with and for humanity. That's our calling. We're not alone. We can do it with his help. Amen.